Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and my guest in this episode is none other than the OG himself, Ash Moria. Now, I say OG because Ash is one of those people whose work in one way or another has been shaping the conversation of all things product development and lean startup for well over a decade now. Ash is the best-selling author of Running Lean and Scaling Lean. He's also the creator of the Lean Canvas, which is one of the most widely used tools out there to visualize how the pieces of a new business all fit together. It's actually one of my favorite tools for thinking through new ideas. Now, Ash has just released his latest thinking on this idea of the innovator's gift in the third edition of his book, Running Lean, which just came out. In this conversation, we go deep on where and how you can find problems worth solving, that is, challenges that are actually worth your time. We explore the sequence of hidden milestones that are on the way to product market fit, which I was not aware of before this conversation, and how to identify your true early adopters, how to know what action to take. We also cover foundational territory on jobs to be done, which is one of my favorite frameworks to better understand what people actually need, want, and buy. Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this terrific deep dive with one of the best innovation thinkers out there, Ash Moria. Ash, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing just great. Pleasure to be on. Absolutely. I'm such a fan of your work. You and I have traded the occasional email for at least five years now. So it's such a it's such a pleasure to, you know, actually get to spend some quality time together and really dive into your material. Um, you I, I think I've said this before, but your work uh is up there with anybody who's influenced my thinking. Uh, among the most influential pieces of bodies of work on my thinking as like a product person and a person who thinks about putting new stuff in the world. So uh, I'm just stoked you're here. <laughs> oh, thanks for that. Yeah, I'm, it's, it's, it's going to be a blast. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the places I always like to start is just getting, you know, getting to know you a little bit better, right? So you've been you've been an author in this space for like a decade now. But even before that, I know you were building things of your own. And I'm, I'm just so curious, what was the moment where you realized, I need to get this out of my head and, and share this with the world? Was there a moment like that where it just became very clear to you? I would say that I, I started with blog posting. That's how I got into writing. Um, and I found that every time I wrote a blog post, it clarified my own thinking. But I wrote for myself. I mean, there happened to be an audience, but it was really more for me, me writing to... Um, get things out there. And if it helps someone, that's great. But it was really more of a very personal thing at, in the beginning. Hmm. Um, but the moment when it became about others, I, I can't really put a date to it. But I think just as with any anyone who puts any work out there, including this podcast, once you build an audience, you can't help but be influenced by them. Um, and so seeing the reaction there um, got me, there was a trigger in my head that said, I'm not the only one going through this journey. There are lots of people that are hitting the same questions, roadblocks, fears, concerns, wanting to know how to put this to practice. And that just became very exciting. The timing was also great. That was also when there were meetups being formed around the Lean Startup. And so there were easy places that one could go to and find like-minded people and just go and have a conversation and geek out about the stuff. So all of that taken together is um, just got, got me started. Yeah, no, I remember, I think I, I first, was it, was it like 2009 or 10 when you started on that process? Does that sound right to you? Late 2009. Yeah. So like, I, I mean, that's very vivid because I can, that was when I started this particular blog post and that's the first post there. So it was like, I think October, 2009. 
<laughs> yeah, no, because I was sitting here thinking about like, when did I first come across your stuff? And I think it because that was right when I was getting into all of this. And you were, I think, one of the first people whose material I came across. I think I, I remember buying like your early PDF or something and emailing you like a billion questions. <laughs> and you were very gracious and actually wrote me back. But oh, wow. okay. yeah, I know I, I was looking for this the other day. I was like, wait a minute, I remember this uh, because you're right. That was that really fun period, like before, like the quote lean startup was a thing. And there was just basically a bunch of us going to meetup groups. And like hanging out over, you know, over a beer and, or a coffee and, and just talking about this stuff. So, man, what a what a crazy journey it's been. How's it evolved in that time? So I would say that the practice has certainly evolved. I mean, one, a lot of the principles are out there at the same time as with anything. It starts out rather pure. And then just with the practice, it evolves sometimes in, in good directions, sometimes in, in maybe not so good directions. And so it's so I think all part for the course. You can take any any framework or methodology, whether it's agile or anything like that, and you kind of have that similar journey. There's the the initial momentum and hype curve. And that's was those early days where everyone was talking about this. Still lots of core principles, a lot of emphasis or exploration on how how to's and then, you know, there's a group of people doing this. Everyone else kind of ignores you and says, ah, this is just nothing. And then everyone kind of joins the party. And then that's mm-hmm. when it just becomes another another challenge where everyone now thinks they know, they understand the principles, they know how to do it. And like I said, then, then the evolution really happens. So that's just kind of par for course with any any framework. And this one is no different. Uh, so really lots of things have changed, like basic definitions, things like MVP, for example, is one of those things where, you can go on your favorite platform, LinkedIn, uh, even Twitter, and you will find. I still see this every other day. There's a new MV something, you know, minimum wide, <laughs> desirable or feasible mm-hmm. or you know, sustainable product, and mm-hmm. people coming up with their takes of it, uh, which is all good. So we want to have that conversation, but it just seems like it's deja vu. We have this these cycles every every so often. It's like we forget we did this five years ago, and then we're like, oh, it's new. And we're like, actually, that was, right. you know, anyways. You're one of the few people I've seen really holistically integrate this is the jobs to be done framework. Um, and, you know, I've seen a lot of different takes on that framework over the years, whether it's Bob Mesta's work, you know, or Alan Clements or any, any of these things. But I think you're the, I think you're the only person I've seen actually like fully integrate that into a playbook for early stage work. Um, which I, I certainly appreciated. So talk to me about the innovator's gift. Like if I don't know what that is, what, what is the innovator's gift? Could you just define that for, for the listener? Yeah. So when we are charged with building a better product, the big million or billion dollar question is what does better really mean? And a lot of us entrepreneurs, innovators, product people define it with respect to our solution. So we almost say, I'm going to build X, what's better about X? And then we start imagining the customer who will use it the problem with that is that many times that's not how the customer views the world. So the idea of the innovator's gift is this realization that in order to build something better, it has to be better with respect to something. And that's where the existing solution lives. And so the other way of saying this is that when we are trying to build a new innovative product, we want an innovative solution, a new way to build the thing or solve, you know, get the job done. We don't want an innovative problem. If the problem is new and something your customer doesn't know or understand, that's going to get you into trouble because they're just not going to want your product. So the idea of the innovator's gift is let's not, let's, let's not start with chasing new problems. We need to actually find old existing problems that people are currently struggling with 
And the way you do that is by studying their old existing solutions to get the job done. And that's where we find true problems worth solving. That's where we find these switching moments where Uber comes along and all of a sudden they break taxis or Tesla comes along and all of a sudden they break sports cars for people because Teslas can go fast and they're green, right? So that kind of thinking is what, what the innovator's gift is about. Yeah, it seems like it's almost sort of an innovation or or product application of that. What's that old writing saw about like, there's no new things, there's just old things set in new ways? Sure. <laughs> so one of the things that I, I'm I'm really, that I love that I heard you talk about in a, I think a webinar of yours that I was on like a year ago, right? Depth of the pandemic, everyone's freaking out. This is like early 2021. And you were talking a lot at that time about uh, switching triggers. So I'd love you to just lay, a, again, lay just a little bit of a conceptual foundation here so we, so the listeners with us of like, just really quick, what is a switching trigger? And like, are there different kinds that we need to be aware of? Yeah. So if we, again, take that idea of the innovator's gift, the basic premise is that we don't actually buy a new product. We switch from something old to something new. And a switching trigger is what prompts that action. And there can be many different kinds of switching triggers. So pandemic, the one you just mentioned here is a global, it's probably the biggest switching trigger we've all lived through in our lifetimes and probably some of us still, you know, we're still going through it. Um, but it changed the world. So when there's something like a pandemic comes along, it changes the world. It breaks a lot of old ways of doing things from how we work, how we go to school, um, how we eat, how we go to restaurants, all of those things break. And all of a sudden, people are now more open to behavior change. They still want the desired outcome, which is I need to do all those things. How we do it is where the opportunity and that crisis is where we find these opportunities. Um, so that's kind of the basic definition of switching triggers. And then there, there are various kind of uh, types of them, as you, as, you describe, as, as you mentioned. So you're talking about these different kinds of switching triggers. Our job isn't to make a new thing. Our job is to cause a switch. And so it seems like this is really a central idea that we've got to understand. So I guess the question that leaves me with is how do we find like some of the switching triggers? Super obvious, right? You have a pandemic. It broke. It broke the status quo. OK, that happens. But that is not always. Thank God that's not always the case. <laughs> uh, but if, so in the case of a like less in our face switching trigger, how do you or where you don't know it? Like, let's say somebody has a product idea. How do they go about actually finding the trigger? Like, how do they figure out what it is that they need to work with there if they don't already know? Sure. So some, so we, we are looking for something changing in the world that can be at a macro level. So pandemic is one of those. And even along those lines, there can be kind of smaller events, of course. There can be things like um, new, new, new inventions. It could be some new technology. You know, we're all into this NFT world right now. And that's kind of a, a thing that's happening and it's changing at least some people's behaviors or how they might, they might kind of interact with that. And so exploring that further, but those would be examples of things, whether they are um, inventions, you know, the internet, when it hit the scene was I mean, another one of those, of course, was a massive, massive change, but it started small. It didn't start, you know, changing everything all at once. Mm, yeah. Um, but kind of those kinds of things are, are, are places we can look, but the, Really, the best way I find is to go and do some discovery work. So this is where when we bring this idea of the job to be done, whenever I work with a, a team that has an idea, I try to have them list out some existing ways that their customers could currently try to do this thing. And on our on the Lean Canvas box, that would be the existing alternative box. So let's figure out, you know, when 
when people need to get this job done, what are the things they currently reach for? And going and exploring how they are picking and choosing and deciding which ones to pick will often reveal those triggering events. Um, these could be in the customer's world, things that are changing. So there, again, a few things we, we can kind of break them into three main categories. There could be bad experiences. So they could be in a situation where their old solution is not working as it used to because of things that have happened. Um, and uncovering those things that have happened is the bad experience switching trigger. Um, the other one might be a change of circumstance. So they may have uh, maybe a good example of this is since we talked about sports car, they've got a nice two-seater sports car, but they the couple then uh, learns that they're expecting. So all of a sudden they need more space for the baby. And so that's an example of a change in circumstance switching trigger. Um, and then the last one is an awareness one. And so these could be as people are moving through different points in their life, they may have different you know, things happen, maybe at the doctor's office, a diagnosis, uh, good or bad, you know, those kinds of news that we hear about the problem or the, 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 the event is rather neutral, but what we do with it could lead to that kind of a switching trigger. So those kind of triggers are oftentimes hidden below, this, below the surface. We don't really know that. And so I find that having a conversation with a with a potential customer that you want to serve and not just one, but many such conversations reveal these events like, like dominoes that make one thing fall after the other uh, and leads them down this path of wanting a new product. And that's where the, the innovation opportunity lies. I think this is where your, your tool of the, the customer forces canvas comes into play, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So talk to me a little bit about that. What, what is that? If I'm not already familiar with that, what is it? How do I use it? And then we'll talk a little, I want to really get into some of the, let's make this like very tactical for people, because I think that's one of the real strengths of your work is you seem to be great at going from the abstract to the, to the, like, here's what to do. So the best way I find to describe the customer forces, it is, it is a customer journey map. So we all maybe know, at least conceptually know what a customer journey is, a buyer journey. So how, how they might go through the, a series of steps to pick and choose a product and consume a product, decide to keep it. What's different is that rather than building a multi-page customer journey map with mm -hmm. a whole bunch of things happening, we try to summarize that into these forces. And these forces are what's causing customers to do certain things. Um, so customer is happily moving along and it's like a once upon a time story They're They're happily moving along. Maybe I'll even tell one of those or yeah, maybe they're meeting some, some, some friends, uh, in a bar. Um, they realize that two out of the three friends just recently bought a new car. Um, and they're so happy with it. They're talking about all the new features that the car has. I don't know about you, but if I was in that room, all of a sudden my car, which was, you know, just fine before that conversation starts to feel a little bit old, like you get this. This, this envy and you may want to want to buy a car. So that's kind of how that story might begin. And that would be the planting of a switching trigger. Now, at that point, people don't immediately, of course, go out and buy a car. But this is where we get into this passive looking stage. And when we're in passive looking, we might start to notice billboards. We might start to hear ads on the radio that we're always there. We just have this, this perceptual view that, that just gets a bit more acute. Um, so we start paying attention to mm. these things, still not deciding to buy the car uh, the following week, we realize that our car breaks down, and this isn't the first time. It's actually happened. It had happened a month before. We take it in for a checkup. We realize we need major repairs, and so that's an example of the next trigger. So these kinds of triggers are, are occurring, 
And so we summarize those into things that are pushing the customer towards making a change. So I've got this old car now in my head. I'm seeing these forces stack, the pushes pushing me towards a new car. Um, I might start deciding which kind of car I'm looking for. Uh, maybe I want an electric car. So I go and start looking at those. Each of those products I consider has a pull to them. So the push is pushing me to make a change. The pull is pulling me towards this top of the hill. If you can visualize, I'm trying to get to my destination. And I might consider mm -hmm. multiple products along the way, and each will have a different strength of pull. Um, and if that, if it were all that easy, we would just be buying lots of products. There are these negative forces as well. So just like climbing a hill, um, there's the push and the pull that kind of makes us go up the hill but then we have to deal with inertia and friction. Um, and I'll define those. So inertia is essentially our unwillingness to change. Um, mm. So if we think about why wouldn't I want to buy a car? Well, I have an existing car. Yes, it's old, but do I really just need to go out and, and buy a new car? Um, so that comfort of the old is, is where we want to just stay back and not do anything. Um, so many times we, we, we get overwhelmed by inertia and that's why we don't actually move forward with, with buying decisions. And so that's one of those negative forces. The other one is friction. As we imagine this new car, if I am thinking of getting an electric car, I get all kinds of anxieties like, where will I charge this? Do I have you know, enough? Uh, is, is it going to be enough to get me around town? Are there enough charging stations? And then price, you know, can I really afford this car? Loans, all of those kinds of things are frictional forces that also keep me from moving forward. So we can break it into that, those forces into four forces that act on every decision we make about products. There's the push, there's the pull, there's inertia, and then there's friction. And when we unpack those forces, we can better understand how people make decisions at different points in that buyer journey and which forces are, are driving them towards either moving forward or not. And that helps a lot with marketing, sales, designing better products. How do you actually go about finding that stuff? I mean, you know, the, the pithy answer is like, well, just go talk to people. But, you know, I think a lot, one of the things I've picked up from your work is like, there is actually a bit of a sequencing to this that, that matters. Uh, and it's not quite that simple. And, and I think, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you might say that one can waste a lot of time and cycles by either doing this too soon uh, or, or doing it too late. So how, how do you think about that? Or how do you guide people in that, uh, in that pursuit as they're trying to actually find these things? Yeah, so it, it does start with customer conversations, but always the, the challenge with talking to customers is knowing um, a, a bit how to do it. Um, so we we oftentimes, uh, I, I guess even before talking to customers, I see a lot of uh, teams out there that just want to you know, build some surveys and go in and, and run these surveys mm -hmm. or do some focus groups. The challenge with surveys is surveys are good validation tools for confirming really what you already know. You want to just at mm. scale be able to say, these questions I have, do these answers, the answers that I get back, do they kind of correlate with, with what I'm generally thinking? Mm -hmm. In the discovery work that we are talking about, discovery by definition requires learning things, insights that we don't know, and that's where the conversations help. Um, the other trap people fall into is, let's just go and talk to customers and ask them what they want. Mm -hmm. And this is where, again, customers will usually give us a bunch of surface solutions or things that they may think they want, but when we actually go and and build this, we all of us have probably lived through that. Um, look at a backlog of features you get from your customers, and many of them are really just solutions disguised as problems. And the sad part is when you even build them for your customers, they're like, "Oh, that's not what I really wanted. Maybe." 
go do this instead. Mm-hmm. So it's just a wild goose chase. And I've been on that treadmill many, many times. So that's, that's, that's why I bring that up. Um, so the approach that we want to take, and this is where, why I'm so excited and why, why jobs to be done kind of surface into a lot of, or, or I found its way into a lot of the work that I do is that it's a backdoor to figuring out what people actually struggle with. Hmm. So when we are doing these conversations, we don't want to even lead with problems. We don't want to say, do you have problem X or Y? We actually want to lead with what are people trying to get done? Like what, what, when there's a situation that occurs, when it's, uh, you know, uh, when, when, when something happens in their world and they are trying to get this job done or trying to get this outcome, where are they going? What are they doing? And that's when the forces start to play and you actually see them in the conversation. And that's, that's the process that we follow. So running, um, just half a dozen to a dozen of those interviews is a very effective way of understanding all the different stories, all the different ways that people are trying to get this thing done. Um, and that's when you can go back and say, here's a cluster of things that seems interesting. And then we put on our entrepreneurial hat on and try to design solutions. And then this whole process for how we might test that afterwards. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The, I guess the question I have, you know, I've I've read and and gone at least reasonably into the jobs to be done material, and I've done some of it myself in terms of practice, but I, I would not consider I do not consider myself like an expert on it. And one thing I've noticed is that it's a really great conceptual model, right? Every, most people I talk to they get it pretty quickly, but a lot of people really struggle to do it. And I'm curious, like, how do you like to do it? How do you actually like to conduct these interviews? Do you have a certain methodology or interview approach you use? Yeah. So jobs to be done is a little bit, I, I like to describe it as a magic trick. You know, it seems very obvious once you know the secret, um, not, not the secret of how to do it, but once you know the insight you're trying to get, and those of you that are familiar with jobs to be done, there's the famous milkshake study. There are many of these things you can go in and look at. If you don't know what that is, just Google jobs to be done milkshake study. And, and for the listener, we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. So Perfect. everything Ash is talking about that will also be linked. So you can just kind of check it out that way too. Awesome. Great. Um, so if you actually look at that, there are some pretty uh, irrational insights that that this team uncovers. And once you know it, it almost seems like obvious in hindsight. And that's the challenge with all these jobs to be done pieces. And what I actually saw in the body of work, a lot of the thought leaders that you just mentioned, um, we're sharing all these amazing stories. And that I wanted to do those kinds of things. but want to understand more of the how to do it or how, how you actually do it. So the best way that I found to run the interviews is almost to use those forces as a mental model, kind of in the back of your head. So the push-pull inertia friction, and then think of the customer journey as a timeline. So we are trying to figure out what are a series of events that are happening to customers that are shaping their decisions along the way. And from those two models, we build a bit of a story arc or a narrative for how to conduct the interviews. This is where I'm not very big on, on scripting these interviews because we don't know which questions we need to be able to ask, but I do like to start with a handful of questions that can spring the conversation. So if I knew that somebody just joined a new gym, we'll start there and just say, Oh, you joined this gym and just like an interviewer, you then want to try to almost take a investigative reporter, journalist, you know, movie producer type of a frame and say, scene by scene, let's try to figure out what happened. So you joined this gym, you know, what day was it? Where did you buy, you know, how did you buy this? Were you alone? 
And then let's kind of work backwards to what was that first domino that tipped? Maybe they got on a weighing scale and realized they were a few pounds heavier. Uh, you know, maybe something else happened. So we want to understand like what led that. And that's just how we run the conversation. So it's a very casual interview, much like this one, where you can just unpack everything that happened. Um, and then we post-process all of that into this customer forces canvas. So we use that as a guide to say, where, where were all these forces and how do they, what was that interplay of forces? And the magic in all of this is when you go and have those half a dozen to a dozen conversations, the stories start running into each other. Yes, there are many reasons why people might join a gym initially um, for different mm -hmm. goals, but there are an infinite number of them. They're usually a top three to five, from my experience, of stories that you will hear on what caused somebody to go join the gym. And there's a there's usually a top three to five of types of gyms that people pick. And once you start to see these patterns, that's when you begin to see these jobs-based clusters of of people that you can potentially serve. And then again, that that helps in in prioritizing where to focus. One of the things that I'm hoping you can help me and the listener with is understanding, I'm going to frame it this way, kind of like which tool when. It can be difficult when you're in those early stages and things are chaotic and confusing to think about, like to orient yourself and to say like, okay, like where am I? Where do I need to go to next? What's the next thing I need to do, et cetera. So I'm hoping you can help me contextualize this a little bit for, for myself selfishly, but also for the listener. So for example, um, there's another uh, interview approach I've heard. I've, I've read you read some of your material on in the past that I think you call the existing alternative interview. So for example, like how is that different than the kind of interview you're talking about now, both in terms of what you do with the interview and also when you do that interview and maybe also why you do that interview. Sure. To throw like five so, questions at once at you. <laughs> yeah, I'll see see how how we can we can get get through all that. Yeah, this is for the um, listener, This is bad interviewing technique. Just I want to call myself out. This is not how you do a good interview. But the, it was a jumbled mess in my head. But maybe Ash can sort sort me out. Um, well, so the first thing I'll say is that the existing alternative interview, as opposed to say a triggering event interview, are are the are the two types of interviews that that I generally talk about. The way we run them are still, the, the goal is the same. We are trying to unpack the journey that the customer went. And so maybe I'll explain why, why they're named different. Sometimes when you have an idea, we know what the triggering events are. Like, you know, we talked about the pandemic. We know that this pandemic thing is happening and it's causing a lot of disruption. So we might say, you know, this is happening. Let's go and find people affected by this. And again, it's gonna, that's an easier thing. But maybe mm -hmm. if we go into a particular subset of customers, let's go like the, the the nature of work. Let's go and find companies that would normally work in person. Now that they're working remotely, let's go and see how they're struggling. Right. So we start with the pandemic, and then we're going and just asking people in in this in this group how are they trying to get that done. So that's kind of more in the framing. Um, other times we may start with an existing alternative. So sometimes the triggering events are, are, are easy to identify, but they're hard to go and find. They're, they're not that actionable because we can't find people just because they have this trigger because it happens on their head and we don't have an evidence, we don't have any evidence of it. So maybe an example that I can share there is how do you find a new startup founder? Right. So we mm -hmm. know that they had to have an idea. Mm -hmm. They maybe are working on something. But what do I look for? Right. And that's where the existing alternatives can help. So when a startup founder has a new idea, maybe they're going to a meetup group 
And so if I go and find, if I just go to the grocery store, I'm not going to find that startup founder. But if I go to a, a meetup group where they're talking about starting up, they may end up, they may, they may be there. Uh, so we might start with the existing alternative. And that's where the framing, that's how we start that framing, which is you join this meetup group. What were you looking, you know, what were you looking to accomplish? And then how did you learn about it? And then we can just start unpacking, unpacking those forces. It may not be a meetup group. They may have bought a course, maybe bought a book. So this is where we start looking at complementary existing alternatives that they would have considered and maybe purchased. And that create, that gives us a place to go and find people, people like that. So it sounds like, you know, at the end of the day, we want to understand both the triggers as well as the, the existing alternatives to really understand our customer better. But which tool we, we use will depend on kind of where we're starting from. So if we, if we have an idea, or for example, if we, have, if we know the trigger, like we know that the pandemic changed things, okay, we don't need to go do the trigger interview because we know what the trigger is. We can do, and now we can do the existing alternative interview to figure out like, well, what are you doing about that? But, or alternatively, it might be inverted where we know that someone joined a gym, but we want to understand the forces that led to that. And so then we would do more of the, the customer forces type interviews. That, am I understanding that right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ash, but I think I've heard you describe, I think you have a very particular definition of what an early adopter is. How should we think about what an early adopter actually is as opposed to this sort of fuzzy concept of an early, you know, air quotes, early adopter. Yeah. So, so that's, that's actually a big one because a lot of people, when we are asked to, to, to uh, when they're asked to define an early adopter, start layering on a whole bunch of avatar and persona type stuff. You know, let's start thinking of their age, their gender, and we start like doing the classic customer segmentation. The danger with that kind of approach is that you may have too many distinguishing characteristics where it becomes harder to find if you're trying to find the early adopter, it becomes harder, more expensive to try to find enough of them. Um, so the art of early adopter definition, in my opinion, is not trying to find the most specific distinguishing characteristics, but the least specific distinguishing characteristics that also correlate with them buying or wanting to buy your product. Um, and so it's, kind of a counterintuitive way at, at, at coming at it because we're always taught, you know, go narrow and, and go go really mm -hmm. specific. But the part you have to recognize is that at the very beginning, we don't know much of anything about who our ideal customers are. And so the more narrow you go, the more chances are you're just going to be wrong or, or find a small hill, right? So if I, another example is that I obviously work with a lot of entrepreneurs. If we stay stuck in the stereotypical two guys in a garage in Silicon Valley as a definition of an, of an entrepreneur, I could go to Silicon Valley and actually find those entrepreneurs and said, see, I was right. This is where all the entrepreneurs are. But of course, miss the mountain of entrepreneurs that are all around the world mm -hmm. and transcend, you know, gender, age, geography, right? And so it's a much, much bigger mountain of an opportunity that I would just completely miss out on. So that's the danger when we, we try to go so narrow and find that, that early adopter based on, you know, those, those many uh, uh, criteria. So the one thing that I find that all early adopters have in common is that they had to have taken action. And that's what we're really looking for. So in those in that customer journey story, they all had to have gotten triggered. And everyone gets triggered, you know, like the pandemic triggers different people at, at different times. But early adopters are different in that they took some action as a result of it. So when we are trying to find, say, early adopters for video conferencing, Triggering event happens. A lot of us look at it. A lot of us say, I wish I could do all these things. And then a lot of us do nothing. 
the early adopters are the ones who start taking that next action. So if we can find mm. them going into that passive looking stage or active looking stage or buying and consum- consuming phase, those are going to be where you find uh, potential early adopters. Now it gets a bit tricky because we don't quite know where our entry could be. So if you think of it as a timeline, people will will start looking for products, start trying products, and based on where which problem you're solving, your entry point might be while they are looking for a new product, while they're in that triggered mode and looking for a solution. That's where if you showed up and said, hey, I'm better than everyone else, they'll buy what you have. Um, it could be that they have to use something to realize that it doesn't work before they consider your product. And it sounds weird, but we have all been there where we, we go and buy the more popular solution and then realize that there actually has there it actually has problems that that are uh, things that are not going to work for us and it, we had to have gone through that journey so part of the discovery is figuring out where is that ideal entry point and then that's when the early adopter shapes uh, you know gets shaped up in a much much more clearer fashion let's say early adopters share a triggering event and, and basically a job to be done. So they, you know, they sort of have a, the journey is bookended similarly, right? Like they started here, they got triggered in a way and they're, they're trying to go to the same kind of outcome. And then there's a, presumably some, some shared um, existing alternatives along the way. The thing I was trying to understand was, okay, so there's these different phases of that journey and what do I do with that knowledge once I have it? And I, I think one of the things that I'm hearing you say here, and please correct me, is that if you know the phases, you, you can find the people much more easily, right? If you know that this is the story, like you know where to go look for these people. Whereas if you don't have that, it's it's like a, you know, who, you're spinning you're spinning around in circles. Like, where do you even go? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I'll maybe share, share a concrete example that might help some. So one of the, yeah, please. the, the uh, products that I did um, work on in that 2010 timeframe as well was an analytics product. Um, and it was targeted at startups. And we've eventually landed with our early adopter definition as being a tech founder three months after launch. And so that kind of sounds very weird, like mm. three months after launch, why three months? Um, and that's because it took that long for them to hit the problem that we were trying to solve. And so we needed not just, if we had just gone after tech founders, um, they would have been too early, too late. And that's what I mean by that nuanced definition of the early adopter. Um, and so I'll kind of explain kind of their journey. So this is, our product was designed uh, to prevent, um, I guess, to help help startup founders make sense of their metrics. Um, we may all have experienced metrics. Uh, we live in a world today where we can measure almost anything if you have a digital product. But the was this user cycle? Into, this user cycle, exactly, yeah. So it's an actual product that I worked on, but we were trying to do a lot, getting to actionable insights with less, with fewer metrics. Uh, and the problem we were trying to solve was the drowning problem. So we, uh, so if you look at that startup founder, they launch a product, emotion really optimistic, you know, very excited, new product launch. Uh, but it takes only a few weeks or maybe a month for them to realize that no one's buying their product. Conversion rates are low. They're getting lots of signups, but maybe no one's activating, no one's purchasing at the end of the month. And so they get all depressed. What do they do? They start investing in metrics. So they may put Google Analytics, they may put, you know, Mixpanel, you can kind of list all the names out there. Um, and this, again, back in 2010, many of these products have gotten to do what we were trying to do back then. But back then, not many of them were, were doing this. But I'll just describe the, the, the timeline. So as they start to layer on these products, the realization they get is we're not getting clearer on 
what's broken. We know that no one's buying. That was not anything new. We just don't know why. And that's what our product helped people get to. Had we gone there in the very beginning and said, use us, we are the startup and we help you figure out why, that would have in some ways not caused a switch because people would go and pick the cheaper, you know, Google Analytics being free, um, the more popular solutions. And so we had to have them go through that two-month cycle, month one to implement these solutions, month two to realize they were now drowning in numbers. There's a new problem that we are struggling with, not hmm. more numbers, but we want to get to some action, some actionable metrics. And that was our unique value proposition. So we kind of waited. And so we would just go out and even when we, people would ask us about user cycle, we had created this little um, kind of intake list. We would ask them, have you launched? Have you not launched? And we could almost predict with pretty pretty good certainty that if they met our criteria, we had three questions we asked. And if they said yes to all three, that only then would they would we show them a demo and our conversion rates were very high to a trial. It was like 90% uh, at that point. This is a really great pivot point. I want to spend some time talking about kind of traction roadmaps and, and the way that people who are getting started can think about this journey that they are undertaking. Um, and it's, you know, ironically, you're just talking about these startup founders going through that first few months of the journey. But I'd love you to maybe start by framing some of the big milestones and defining them. And then let's talk about how one thinks about mapping out that. Um, so maybe you could start by laying out some of the big milestones, like the, the some of the the customer problem fit and so on and so forth. Sure. The, I would say that the, the, the first significant milestone that, that um, lots of startups like to think about is product market fit. And for a lot of startups, that's hard to quantify, which is part of the problem, but they kind of have a qualitative feel. That's when the hockey stick has this inflection point where the product just starts selling like crazy. You're getting you know, customers come through the door. And so we kind of know it, we can actually feel it, but the challenge that I saw a lot of people struggle with is know how to measure it. And that's where this traction roadmap kind of helps. It, we, we start by by framing that milestone, because if you don't quite know uh, what product market fit is, the strategy you use is going to be just all over the place. Do you know whether you should shift into growth mode or still stay in product mode? We don't quite know what that mm-hmm. transition is. So that's the struggle that I saw uh, uh, lots of founders struggle with. And then what we have done further is taken that product market fit point, which generally is about two years on average to get to for many, for most products. Uh, but we break that journey down into a series of sub uh, milestones as you were starting to, to describe. So before product market fit, we started talking about a smaller version of product market fit, which you might think of as just solution customer fit. You're building an MVP and giving it to a customer a handful of customers and them saying, thumbs up, this is great. Um, And then even prior to that, we talk about problem solution fit, which is even knowing what to build. If you don't quite have the right problem to solve, the solution is not going to matter. So we can, again, go and take some of these, uh, the discovery process I was describing with the customer forces to help frame the problems that we should go after. Um, And then even prior to that, we're big fans of business model fit is that even before doing anything, you want to make sure that it's going to be worthwhile at the end. Um, I've seen too many people, myself included, where we just rush out the building, we find um, customers, we build an MVP, and then six or nine months later, we realize that, oh, the market was not as big as we thought. And the sad news there is that you didn't have to wait six or nine months to hit that realization. Had we done some business modeling 
even on paper in the very early early phases of the project, you would have you would have shown that okay, this is not maybe the right right path to go down. Um, so business, if you work kind of forwards, business model fit, then problem solution fit, solution customer, product market. That makes perfect sense, and I I can attest from my own experience. Um, you know, one of the things I've really benefited from is the tooling that you all have built. And again, like we're going to have links to all this in the show notes for the listener, but I highly recommend if you have not actually tried the, the lean stack tooling, go sign up for a free account, give it a go. It'll like make this all very concrete, very quickly. Um, but one of the things that I found so helpful about your, your work and you know, not just the concepts, but the tools was that it helped me save a, a bunch of time, like you're pointing to, right? Like if I, if like I can, you know, beat on a model on paper for a day and realize like, oh man, even if we crush it in this model, it's just not gonna, there's just not enough meat on that bone. Like it's just not going to be the kind of business that we aspire to have then like, okay, well then before we go spend, you know, six months of our lives on this, like, let's do something a little different. So I, I really appreciate that because I, I, I think what it sounds like you responded to in a way was, you know, Steve Blank came in so hard and lean, you know, lean startup came in so hard with the drumbeat of, you know, get out of the building, get out of the building, get out of the building, which was the right thing because everyone was spending way too much time in the building. Uh, but then we almost like overcorrected and threw out all modeling. And it's like, well, okay, hold on. A little bit of modeling can go a long way. We just don't need like 30 page business plan. And so it, I, I'm appreciative that you kind of like brought us back with, you know, brought us back a little pendulum back just a little bit uh was that what you intended to do or, or how did you see that so it, it's so it, it was not it was not intended as, as i mentioned i was i was one of those who wanted to rush out the building because all the as you said all the answers are out there so, so go out and figure it out along the way but as i did that i i found that myself and a few others included we were kind of hitting these local maxima where we were finding uh products that were working for just smaller groups of people and then some of these were hard pivots to then switch the customer segment and so could that time have have been have been saved you know could we have avoided all that all that uh needless work um, that's kind of what prompted the question and it just came back to trying to, to model you know ask those questions in the very early stages and the way i like to explain it now is that Certainly when we start thinking of experiments we run with, we, we think in terms of empirical experiments with customers, but we sometimes don't think about thought experiments that we can do. And thought experiments can be just as powerful. Um, and of course, there are going to be biases and things. And so we have to be, be wary of that, but they can be just as powerful to invalidate ideas. So a thought experiment, if it works, doesn't mean your idea is going to work. You still have to get outside the building and validate it. But if a thought experiment, as you were just describing, proves with pretty high certainty that in the best case scenario, this is just not going to give you what you're looking for, then that's invalidation. There's no point even going down that, that, that end path. And that's kind of how we look at, look at that. Um, so thought experiments can be powerful. I mean, Albert Einstein, for crying out loud, came up with the theory of relativity with a thought experiment. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's I mean, it's like good science, right? A theory can can never be proven true, but it can be definitely be proven wrong. Right. Uh, so similarly, like if we can invalidate the thing on paper, cool. And then the only, you know, quote unquote truth here is when it actually works in the market. But if we can increase our our uh, our odds, then let's take it. So let's let's uh, I want to summarize this and, and try to um, put it into a loose sense of a process for, for the listener, because obviously we're talking about a lot of ideas here and I want to try to uh, ground these a little bit. And for the listener, I, again, I highly encourage you go get the new edition of the book and, and check out the tools there. It's all made very, Ash does a great job of making this very concrete. But since we're in your ears right now, we've got to like kind of frame it up for you a little bit. So if I'm hearing you right, 
there, you know, and I, I think your overarching framework here is sort of first model, then prioritize, then go test. That's right. And so if we, if we think about that, you know, there's the modeling using the, the kind of the traction modeling we we're just talking about. And then you get out into the, the more experimental stuff with customers. Uh, and within that process, it sounds like there's kind of a sequence of milestones along the way that one we can think about in terms of the traction modeling that we then have to go prove in the real world. And if I'm hearing you right, it sounds like those milestones are sort of first we've got, and I'm saying this in, in sort of a, a time sequence, uh, first we've got basically customer problem fit. Like we, you know, we know who they are, what the problem is, what's the job to be done, all the customer forces stuff we were talking about earlier. Then we've got problem solution fit of like, well, we knew the problem, now we know what to do about it. And then um, finally, then we've got sort of solution customer fit of Correct. meaning like, the solution's working for them. They're buying it. And then, you know, as you continue to scale, you get to some place of, of product market fit. So I guess my, my two questions would be, first of all, is that, did I get that right? Is that the right sequencing? And then secondly, is there some way you can quantify that? Like, how do you know if you've got those milestones or not? Yeah, so, so, so that is the right sequencing. And maybe I'll just add like one more tool that we use. So the, the very first tool that I like to start with is not even the traction roadmap. It's more just getting the idea out of people's heads. And we do that with a lean canvas. So a lean canvas has got these nine boxes or 12 boxes, if you count some of the sub boxes, of just letting someone to say, I have this idea and you know, tell me a story about your idea. Who's your customer? What problem are you solving? How are you going to solve it? So that's what the canvas helps them do. And it all, it's designed to fit on a single page. So that constraining, that constrained brings again clarity into one's thinking they would people would love to say you know talk for hours about their idea but forcing them into fitting it into a single page just has this power of, of bringing clarity so that's usually where we start and then we start applying these stress tests and these thought experiments so we might do a first stress test on desirability that's where the innovator's gift comes in so don't tell me what problem you're solving instead tell me what's broken in the world so point to the triggering event point to an existing alternative that you mm -hmm. can do that, you, that your product is better with respect to, right? So that's how we bring the desirability test. We then talk about viability, and that's where that traction road mapping comes in. So we start uh, by framing those milestones and start to do some of these um, back-of-the-envelope calculations to say, can this even work? Um, and then we the final test before we get out of the building is feasibility. So it's great that we have a problem, the problem is big enough, the market's big enough, can we actually build it? Do we do we have the right team? Do we have the right tech? You know, are, is it going to be cost prohibitive for us to build all of those kinds of things? And if we can get checks on all three, as I said, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to hit a, hit, hit it off out the ballpark, but your odds are much higher. So that's kind of how we we prep that. So your your your, your last question at the end there was how do we put some numbers? Is that yeah. So, so once we've, once we've gotten those check marks, right. So we've, we've done our stress tests on paper with uh, desirability, viability and feasibility, and we're, we are getting out of the building now and now we're aiming, you know, and you have some really nice graphics and, and kind of modeling this ramp up over time of traction uh, from sort of, you know, customer problem fit to problem solution fit to solution customer fit to product market fit, you know, whether quantitatively or, or qualitatively, but like, how do you, how do you know if you're, if someone's going down this path, like, how do I know when I actually have customer problem fit or how do I know when I actually have solution customer fit? Sure. Yeah. So, so, so part of that traction roadmap, when we have defined those milestones, those are, those are those qualitative markers in the, in the journey. We need to have actual traction metrics associated with them. Um, whether these are numbers numbers of customers or number of users, we need to have actual actual numbers tied to them. 
how we come to those starts by thinking in terms of where we're headed. So I, I, I love this. I don't know who's the original, um, like who, who actually said this originally, but if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there, right? So if you don't have a destination in mind, we can come up with all kinds of validation mm-hmm. stories. Oh, I have 10 customers. Is that enough? I don't know. Do I have 100? Is that enough? I don't know, right? So we need to know where we're headed. Um, mm-hmm. And so this is where in the book, uh, and in our work, I, I describe um, this concept. When people try to think about goals and, and where they're headed, they start to frame it in terms of maximum upside potential. In other words, how big can my idea get? That's a very hard number to estimate. Um, and we know this. You can go and look at especially the unicorns. All of them didn't think they were going to be unicorns until they actually one day realized they were on the path to become becoming one. So we can't really predict those. And we also, there's just so much uncertainty, so we don't know what uh, what that will look like. So I instead focus on a different number, which is not what's the maximum upside potential, but rather what's the minimum success criteria. And we time frame this with a three-year horizon. Why three years? Because most products can hit product market fit in the first two years, kind of give or take some. So we're giving ourselves a little bit of time to achieve product market fit. Now, how, how do you know what you're aiming for that is more a function of either one's ambition or the kinds of environment you're operating. So if you mm. are a startup, one of the f- first questions I would probably ask you is, are you looking to raise money? And if you're looking to raise money, all of a sudden your environment is going to dictate what product market fit needs to be like, because the investors are not just going to put money because they like your idea. They're going to put money in your business because it's out competing other benchmarks of companies that they would they might consider mm-hmm. putting money into. So once we understand where we're headed at product market fit, and you can go and do some of that research, you can find what our investors valuing today and that becomes the goal. And then we back ourselves from there. And then there's kind of some simple math you can do to extrapolate that back all the way down to you know three months, 90 days at a time, you can figure out what how much traction you need to be able to show in your hockey stick to show the investor or your, or your own team that you're progressing in the right in the right way. Um, so there's always a number, and the, the the hardest conversations I have are with bootstrapped entrepreneurs who say, mm-hmm. "I don't know. I just want to build something successful. I want to build something big." So we have to then unpack what does big mean. And so here it could be helpful to think how big of a company do you want to build? Do you want a hundred? You want a thousand person company? And people say, "Oh no, that's just crazy. Maybe maybe just ten people." Okay, well, now we're getting somewhere because if you've got ten people, we might know what payroll needs to look like. You know, would you like to add some additional buffer for profit and other things? And this is where we can come up with some kind of a goal that the team can can march towards. Uh, but is that is that kind of thinking? It adds a sense of rigor, kind of like some some basic intellectual rigor to an otherwise extremely nebulous process, right? The yeah, that it is true that zero to one stage of anything, whether it's a startup, a book a podcast, like whatever, anything creative, right? Zero to one is always a little crazy. And I feel like anything we can do, any tools we can employ, whether they're, you know, internal tools like thought thought experiments or or external tools like, you know, a, a certain kind of interview um, that will help us navigate that uncertainty is, is a good thing. You know, we're doing ourselves and ultimately our customers a favor because as we increase our odds, we can actually... Um, we're more likely to make the contribution we seek to make. Uh, whereas there's far too many of us who, who, you know, die along the road, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. that's, that's one of the things I really appreciate. Yeah. 
Beautiful. Well, I want to go ahead and um, start to close out here with a couple rapid fire questions. These are they're short questions. You can kind of take them any way you want to take them uh, and feel free to, you know, short questions are short, but your answers can be long if, if you're feeling if you are feeling so moved. Um, <laughs> but, you know, um, just a second ago, you were you were commenting that one of the hardest conversations you've got you have is with founders, particularly at the bootstrap stage who don't really know what they want. Right. Like they haven't defined success. And I guess my question for you would be at, at this stage for you or in this next chapter you go into, whether with this book or whatever else you've got cooking up, what does success look like for you at this point? I guess it's it's moving this this body of work forward. And maybe I'll, I'll describe like I'm more kind of in the purpose stage. I, I, and maybe I'll take a step back. I know it kind of, kind of sounds uh, weird to just start talking about purpose without context. Um, okay. I look at the entrepreneurial journey as being three stages, and I, I see this true with myself. I see it true with with many people that I've worked with. Is we generally start in the artist stage where we are building stuff, and it's really cool. We want to make a dent in the universe, you know, all those things. So let's put our art out there and and really create something mm-hmm. amazing. And so I've kind of been through that stage, and many times, unfortunately, our art doesn't really sell or. You know, that's when we get into stage two, where we realize that artists need to eat as well. It's not just creating <laughs> cool, amazing you know, stuff. Um, and so that's when we get into this business money making type of a stage. And so we start doing a lot of that viability thinking. We start thinking of price. We start, if you're, I was a tech founder, we start getting more into marketing sales or, or get people on the team who can address those gaps. Um, so like that's kind of a, a phase where we start thinking about kind of, um, business model outcomes from a money perspective at stage two. And then there's kind of the stage afterwards when you've got your basic needs met, you kind of are okay and you're not really looking for that next big exit necessarily. And that's the purpose stage. And that's kind of what I hit with this newer company, LeanStack, um, as I was going through my blog writing journey is I could see that it took me seven years to transform my thinking from kind of the old way of building products to this new way. If we could shorten that cycle for the next generation of entrepreneurs, that would be a, a really cool thing to do. And so that's kind of what I yeah. define as success. If we can shorten that cycle time and let them make their own new mistakes, but at least don't make these same mistakes that, uh, that, that, that I've been, I've, I've, I've spent, you know, lost time on. No, I love that. It's, you know, we all, we, we all stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. Right. So it's like, make new, better mistakes, go, go, <laughs> go take some new ground. How do you, how do you, I mean, I, I love the intention of what you're saying. Um, and as someone who's a direct beneficiary, I'll say thanks. <laughs> um, so, you know, we really appreciate it, but I, I love that idea. How do you, how do you measure that? Do you have like a North star metric of, of your own that you think about? Yeah. I mean, for, for a while we, we had a number of entrepreneurs we would like to be able to have have said we have touched in some way kind of usage of our tools so we kind of use those kinds of metrics um Mm. at one point that was a million entrepreneurs and we crossed that threshold and so we're like okay that's we need to now so i like to think in terms of 10x so now we have just 10x that number and Mm. we're waiting to see can we get 10 million people at some point saying i use these tools and i've i've got some you know saved some time or or made some some progress in, in my idea that would be amazing yeah, no, I, I really like that. And I, I love the 10x thinking you do with the Fermi estimates. It's, uh, it's great because you're like, all right, cool. We'll cross that one. Just 10x it and let's get back to work. <laughs> right. it's, it's nice. Yeah, I, that's terrific. I appreciate that. Um, so one of the things that I, I think a lot about is 
questions, right? And I, I don't say that just as somebody who does a podcast, but I think, you know, the questions we ask ourselves determine the way we think and then what we do. And I guess one of the questions I would ask you is if you could have the listener start to ask themselves a question on a regular basis and whether that, you know, regular, whether that's a day, every day or every week, whatever, some cadence you think would be impactful. What cadence, what question would you have them ask themselves and, and how often? Hmm. So I, I almost start every, so I, I tend to be more um, accomplishment driven. Like I can go, when I go to bed at night, I almost try to look back and say, did I move something forward? So really in the morning when I wake up, it usually is before I even do anything. One of the first prompts that I give myself is what is, what's the one thing I need to get done today? And then, and usually that's, uh, that's one of you know, there are kind of different versions of this, you know, rock and all these kinds of things that you probably are familiar with, but that's, it's just that one thing question. Like what's the one thing that you can do to move something forward? And mm. in there is baked, um, this idea of problems before solutions, sometimes uncovering the right, thing requires unpacking the problem a bit more. So all that kind of falls out of it. But um, that's almost the first principle of mine and something we try to instill with everyone that we work with, uh, my team included, is let's not rush to building stuff without having evidence of something being broken in the first place. So a lot of a lot of the work that I do sometimes seemingly see, looks like sitting on my armchair just thinking, but I'm really just trying to understand like, how do we prioritize? That's a prioritized step. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. The I love that way of thinking of, you know, what's the you hear it phrased different ways, like you were saying, you know, what's the what's the one thing that makes everything else either easier or unnecessary. But um, yeah, that whole that whole and great book, by the way, we'll link to that in the show notes. But uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. What is a quote or a saying, you know, is there any quote or saying that you return to? that uh, has been impactful for you? And and what about it speaks to you? Oh, there are so many. I, I, get, I think if you look at my book, I think I almost, at least in with some of the earlier editions, this time my publisher for some reason didn't want as many quotes in, in there, um, but I've got <laughs> lots of them. So um, I, I think it's very contextual for me. I, I would say, like I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Edwards, Edwards Deming. I mean, Steve Jobs has a lot of stuff. Peter Drucker has a lot of stuff. Um, but if kind of on topic, I would say, you know, just recognizing that it's not the customer's job to know what they want, I think is probably a very powerful one. Um, and that came from Steve Jobs. And so really, when we talk to customers, and I see this trap that people people run into a lot is really asking the customer instead of trying to discover where they are trying to go and everything we've talked about, the forces and things. Uh, but that's a very powerful one. And I think it, it, it drives a lot of the, the work and, you know, people will often cite the great Steve Jobs and, and talk about how he <laughs> could, he could see the future, but he did this by, again, a lot of thought experiments and a lot of observation and a lot of asking the question of why are people doing the things they're doing? You know, why are they living with these hard to use products? And then he went off and, and thought of something better. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me of a, a, uh, and I, I don't know where I heard this. I, I, you've probably said it, and so have other people. I, don't, I really don't know. But uh, something I've, I've told people on my teams over the years many, many times, you know, we'll go into user interviews or things like that. I'm like, look, it's their job to be the expert on what's broken, and <laughs> it's our job to figure out how to fix it. 
Yeah. And let's just keep that in mind <laughs> because it's so easy. Like you said, you end up, you can end up with, uh, you know, this backlog full of stuff and none of it really works. And it's, it's like backlog whiplash, right? <laughs> you just get like yanked around, think the thing. And if you don't have that, you haven't dug underneath it all into those forces. You just, you're at the mercy of like recency bias. If what's the last thing said by the loudest person. And if you're in that place, you, you got bigger problems. <laughs> um, <laughs> at least that's how I think about it. So, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you was, and this is, this is something I like to do, especially with somebody like you, who I, I followed your work for so long now, and you've really, you know, you can count me in the, in your, in your metric of people who you've impacted the thinking of, like I'm hundred percent in that, in that count, but who impacted your thinking? Like who's, who's really shaped you, your thinking in the way you see the world. Yeah. Some of the names you've already mentioned. So there are, there are many of the early lean startup thinkers. I would say as I was going through this journey, they were big influences. Prior to that, of course, I had many mentors, but if we stay within, within this framework, I would say they were big ones. People like, uh, you know, Steve Blank for sure, Eric Ries, um, and then many others, Sean Ellis, um, Dave McClure, a lot of the metrics models we use. Um, so when, if you look at my work, it, I sometimes say I'm a bit like a DJ as I take, you know, tracks from many different places, you know, systems thinking, <laughs> jobs to be done, you know, Bob Muesta, you mentioned him. Um, so all those folks have been like huge giants in my own body of work, but I take all these little pieces and I'm a curator. Like I try to find how to stitch them together how to make the, the tools that can make it easier to understand, easier to use. So that's kind of what, what drives me. But all of those, those folks are, are big influencers in, in that, in that work. Um, yeah, you really seem like it, it seems like you and I, uh, I, I similarly identify as like, I would call it maybe a, a synthesizer or a curator mm -hmm. where, you know, I can kind of like see all these things and figure out a way to smush them together into something useful. Um, and that's often, that's often the way I can make a, a unique contribution. So that's, that's interesting. Does that show up for you elsewhere? Is that like just how your brain works? I think it's how my brain works. I, they, there used to be a show that I grew up with. I, I think it was called um, Contacts or Connections, maybe Connections. It was, I think it was some, a British show, but it was all uh -huh. patterns. Like they would start the story with, you know, like maybe there's a, there's a shipwreck happening and then they would lead that to something else. And that connects to this other thing. And it was all these connections in the story and you would end up in these random places. And I found that very fascinating. So I have this, mm. you know, maybe, maybe rather um, naive belief that everything is somehow connected. There is a unified theory of everything. <laughs> so mm -hmm. when, I, when I even encounter a book, even if it's a fiction book and there's an interesting point of view there, I always try to relate it to something a problem that I'm thinking about or how could this be applied in some way? So this is how my brain works for some reason. Yeah, no, uh, just listening to you right there, it reminded me of one book and one really great talk that I, I, I'm curious if you've come across. The book is, uh, I think it's called They All Laughed. And it's the story, it's like the the origin story of all these innovations that, and basically that like the world was like, that's dumb. <laughs> no way that's going to work. But it turned out to be, you know, this amazing contribution to humanity um and and the second one that, that's on the sort of innovation connection side but then the other one have you uh by any chance seen the talk done by tom chi uh he did a talk called i think it's called everything is connected okay have you seen this talk no i have not all right it, it's same idea you're talking about but it, he actually ends up taking it to an almost like metaphysical level but proving that like from a, almost a physics point of view hmm. um it is awesome. I'll send you the link okay. and everybody listening, you should definitely check this. It, it will, it's like a 20 minute talk uh, that he did. I think it like the mind Valley summit a couple years ago, but like it'll, it'll, it'll just hit you. Awesome. Like it's good. Yeah, I, I wrote it down too, like, but I'd love, love a link. 
Yeah, yeah, I will. I will send you the link, and, and for the listener, this will all be in show notes. But I think uh, I think those might resonate with you, especially given our shared topical interests. So, uh, yeah, I hope you let me know what you think when you check them out. Uh, well, awesome, Ashley. This has been an absolute pleasure. As I said, uh, you know, I've admired and followed and benefited from your work for well over a decade now. So, thanks for taking some time out of your day to, to hang with me and, and our listeners. Um, and for the listener, you know, we are going to link to all this stuff in the show notes. I highly recommend go sign up for Lean Stack, use the tools, get Ash's book. It, I mean, I've been through all this stuff. I can tell you, like, I don't recommend it lightly. It is, it's legit. Do it. It will help you. And uh, it's, you know, as you can tell by listening to Ash, he, the guy knows what he's talking about. So Ash, first off, you big gratitude and thank you for being here and for your work. Um, what would you just like to leave the listener with and, and where can people find you to follow along for the journey? Yeah, first, first, thank you, Andrew. I'll, I'll probably leave you with the with the first mindset that that we teach, and it's kind of the theme of the talk today. But it's love the problem, not your solution, um, and that's probably the thing that takes. It's the easiest thing to think you understand, but it takes. Like, I think it can take many many decades to kind of get that right. Um, as we we as humans just usually gravitate towards solutions over problems. So hopefully that something you can take away, and a lot of what we do is just kind of peeling peeling that onion a bit, <laughs> a bit, a bit further. Um, in terms of where, where to find me, you already mentioned LeanStack. That's the, the company I run. That's kind of where I live. My email is just ash at leanstack.com. Um, I do look at my email a lot. So that's a place you can definitely hit me if you've got questions, comments. Um, and then the same, my first name, last name, Ash Moria is that is my handle on any, on many things. So LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. So you can find me in all those places. Awesome. Ash, well, again, thank you so much. And uh, thanks for being here today. Keep it up. Good luck with the book. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, Leave them better than you found them. See you out there.